0: Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, today, I'm sort of mildly in mourning, I guess. Maybe mourning is too strong because, you know, everyone dies. But we lost a real one. I am talking none other than the queen of soul herself, Aretha Franklin, she passed away from pancreatic cancer at the age of 76 on August 16th. Now, something that I should sort of right off the bat say is that me with a microphone with free reign to talk about really any musical icon that I, that I admire, but especially Aretha Franklin, that is a recipe for a six-hour podcast that no one would listen to or enjoy. <laughs> um, so I'll try to rein it in. You know, for, for that reason, I want to be very clear in no way is this episode meant to be a, you know, encapsulation of her entire life. Yes, we are leaving a ton out. Yes, there is so, so much we could say. I mean, she's the queen of soul, for God's sake. She's royalty. Um, but, you know, just out of respect, out of R-E-S-P-E-C-T <laughs> for the queen, we had to do a little something, really talking about a little bit about her life and one of her most iconic songs, Respect. yeah. Yeah, I I
1: remember the first time I heard that song, I I remember where I was, and it was like back in the time of um, (laughs) cassette players, and I, I had recorded it off of the radio with like a, I had one of those really dumb looking child ones, you know, that was like red and had big yellow buttons in the microphone, I held it up to the radio, so the sound quality was terrible.
0: I know exactly what you're talking about. It had the the little cord. The microphone had that curly cord. Yes. I can can see it when I close my eyes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes, I I got
1: it off the radio. And at the time, like, I just remember sitting in my room with the lights off and the headphones and just like listening to this very poor sound quality version of Respect by Aretha Franklin.
0: Oh, man. (laughs) It's such, I mean... It, it is one of those songs where I feel like you remember, if not the first time you heard it, you remember the first time you heard it. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe you don't recall the exact first time you ever actually heard it, but you remember the first time it like hit you. You know? I think that we all have that moment. Oh yeah, I I'm such a fan of Aretha Franklin. Um, my favorite song by her. I mean, there's so many to name, but my favorite is probably Rock Steady. It's probably her. I think it's her funkiest. I um, know I always said if I was ever going to get married, I would walk down the aisle to baby, I love you um, because she just had she had this way of capturing what it felt like to be in love where it maybe isn't super clean. Maybe it isn't super, you know, maybe you have a complicated relationship, but you still love the person. And, you know, there were there are singers that sing about love and romantic love where that love doesn't feel like the love I've had in my life. And there are singers that sing about romantic love. And I think that sounds like what my experience has been with love. And Aretha Franklin is one of those, of those singers. And I think it's one of the reasons why I find myself so drawn to her. So in thinking about the song Respect, one of the things that I think is so tantamount to why that song exists as this powerhouse anthem it is a bit sad, which is that she she did have a pretty tough, sad upbringing that she wasn't super vocal about. She kind of suffered in silence about a lot of the, the, the heavier aspects of her life.
1: Yeah. And, and for a quick kind of early biography, she was born in 1942 in Memphis as the fourth of her mother's five children. But her home wasn't a stable one. Her mother... Barbara Siggers Franklin, um, who had a child from a previous relationship, left the family when Aretha was six years old. And many characterized her leaving as abandonment, but Franklin starkly disputed this idea. Quote, In no way, shape, form, or fashion did our mother desert us. She wrote in her autobiography, Aretha, from these roots. She was extremely responsible, loving, and caring.
0: After her mom died when she was 10... Her father, Reverend Clarence Lavon, otherwise known as C.L. Franklin, moved the family to Detroit. Um, so I should say a lot of the information that we have here are from various newspaper accounts and, and interviews. And so we say where those are, where that is the case. But the two kind of biggest definitive books about her life are one, the book that you just mentioned, Annie, her autobiography, Aretha from These Roots, and two, the book Respect, The Life of Aretha Franklin. Now, the, the same writer worked on both of these books. David Ritz was her biographer. And so Ritz and her partnered for her, her autobiography, Aretha. But the book Respect, Aretha actually wasn't so into that book. I just need to say that as a disclaimer. Um, she, just, she says that the book is full of lies and distortions and all of that. So to be very clear, she pushed back on a lot of how Ritz characterized her in that book despite the fact they had worked together on her actual autobiography years earlier. So this is a disclaimer for the information that we're giving. So according to that that book by Ritz, her father, this, this reverend, uh, I guess we could say that he was an unconventional guy. Um, Ritz alleges that his congregation was sort of a sexually hedonistic place, that he was a bit of a playboy, and that his his... Church services would often turn into, you know, I mean, he uses the word orgies. I don't, I didn't want to say that, but, and he actually has this anecdote that Ray Charles, if you know about Ray Charles's life, he was someone who was, you know, he liked the ladies and he liked, he liked to party. That one day that Ray Charles went to her father's uh, congregation and was shocked and appalled by what he saw because it was that hedonistic. Um, again... Pointing out that Aretha Franklin claims that this this book is full of distortions and lies and none of this ever happened. Um, but that is how he characterized her father. And her father was a very big part of who raised her after her mother uh, left their family.
1: Yeah. And um, Franklin, Aretha Franklin, had her first child at 12. And she later dropped out of school to focus on her singing, Quote, we were part of that generation of young female singers who definitely sacrificed time with our kids to attend to our careers. We did so knowingly. That's what Franklin's eldest sister said in the book. We also did so with heavy guilt. She continued.
0: Yeah, it seems like they were just part of that generation where if you had a dream, you know, I mean, it's difficult to be a a woman with a creative ambitions in general, but if you had a dream, you kind of had to figure out how you were going to make make it all work. And, you know, she was a, a very early mother, and figuring out how to navigate that is hard enough. But figuring out how to, how to navigate that and an ambitious dream, I, I can't imagine how, how pulled she must have felt in multiple directions. Her
1: grandmother also had a big hand in raising um, her children. I still wanted to get out and hang out with my friends, Franklin told Ebony in 1995 about being a young mother Um, and she continued I wanted to be in two places at the same time but my grandmother helped me a lot and my sister and my cousin they would babysit so I could get out occasionally oh I relate to wanting to be in two places at the same time so much
0: yeah she, she probably wanted to be there with her kids but also wanted to be singing on the road performing because that was her passion and again it's just an interesting illustration of being in a society that makes you choose. You know, you can't... You, you don't feel right about being able to do them both. And so you, you end up with this longing of, if only I could be in two places at once.
1: hmm And Franklin also survived an abusive marriage. She married her manager, Ted White, in 1961, when she was just 19. But after seven years of marriage, they separated in 1968. The end of their marriage was dogged by reports of domestic abuse, and White, quote, roughed her up more than once, according to a 1968 Time story.
0: It was not the first incident. I don't think she's happy. Somebody else is making her sing the blues. Franklin's friend and fellow gospel singer, Amelia Jackson, told Time, quote, Ugly physical fights were not unusual between White and Franklin, Ritz wrote as reported by the New York Times. And this is, I think, why I identify so much with her her music because I don't feel like they glamorize being in love with someone who is awful for you. But I think that they speak to uh, like what that feels like in a way that I think is really authentic and also authentic for the time, you know? Like, I think that the way that she put that, bluesy pain over what it felt like to be in love with someone who was awful for you and that you knew was no good. I think nobody did that like her. And when I hear her music, it's like I I hear it with my bones. It's like I understand even... It's like I understand what she's saying and what she's not saying. And I think that a lot of people say that her 1967 classic I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You is about those times with her husband. The song says... I don't know why I let you do these things you do to me. My friends keep telling me that you ain't no good, but oh, they don't know that I'd leave you if I could. I never loved a man the way that I love you, she sings. Um, And here's a bit of the song. how she uses her her gift, her, her voice, her soul, her song, her passion to say so much. And I think that that's why I love her work is that she is so authentically herself and that you can really hear that she is putting all of her pain, all of her longing, all of her trauma, all of her regret into her song, even if the lyrics are kind of, you know, straightforward. When you hear it, when you, when you hear that song, you understand all that she's up against, all that she's dealing with. And it, it's just like you, you, you hear it. Like, you, I don't know how else to put it. Like, you really, you know, sometimes you hear music and sometimes you, you feel music. And I, I feel like I feel her songs.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: And that's really why I wanted to open up today's show with talking about some of the, uh, the more, you know, difficult aspects of her life is because I think that's why we have so much of her great art, is because she puts all of her pain into song, which leads us to respect, which we'll talk about after this quick break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So again... There are so many songs of Aretha's that I love. What's your favorite Aretha Franklin song? Is it Respect?
1: It might be. Um, it makes me like, <laughs> like... I'm just making this motion with my body that no one can see. It makes me feel powerful. It makes me want to like get up and do something, which I love. It, it, it moves me to movement.
0: Ooh. Ooh, yeah. That's good, dude. It's <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> yes, I mean that's like that's yes. It moves you to movement. And again, respect is a no anthem, right? Like that, like that. When you think about like, there's a scene in Bridget Jones where she tells off her boss, and they play that though just those notes where it's like you feel it in your spine. It is a it is a song that moves you to movement. And I think that the reason why that song is is because. She took all of this crap that she dealt with in her life and she put it on that record. She made, she, she made you feel it, that I have put up with a wall of sh- and I'm putting up with it no more. And I am not asking for, demanding respect.
1: Yeah, and I actually didn't know that it was a cover of a
0: 1967 Otis Redding song. Yeah, I mean, again, because it's she made it her own. She made it so iconic. A lot of people don't know it's actually a cover. Aretha Franklin told the Washington Post in 1987, "I liked his version. Of course, I felt I could bring something new to it. Uh, understatement of the century. <laughs> yeah. I think she's, she definitely succeeded in that.
1: I haven't heard the other one, <laughs> but.
0: I mean, it's 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 different. It's good. Otis Otis Redding is a is a an icon himself. It's good. But it's one of those rare songs where the cover is just the version of the song. You know, there are there are songs that when you think of, you know, you know, maybe you know their covers. I'm trying to think of some examples. Hurt, people are probably hurt people are by probably, Johnny Cash. Okay, that's a good example, right? <laughs> I was going to say people are probably going to write in and be like, "How dare you say that?" You know, this ver- cover is better than that version. But isn't the Johnny Cash like? When is the last time you put on Nine Inch Nails version of her? right? Like the Johnny Cash version is the version that we remember. Yeah. And even I would say like, I
1: appreciate both versions and I feel like they're two completely different songs, even though they're the same song. I feel like something different is being communicated in both of them, which is really interesting. And it shows the power of music. But I mean, in this case, Otis Redding is, is an icon in his way. And, and I Probably I'm going to go look up his version. I, I would suspect it just communicates a different vibe. And we do, we're going to talk about the lyrics as well, because that kind of shifted too.
0: Yeah, it, it, you're, you're exactly right. It does communicate a different vibe. According to Ritz's Respect, the song was already part of Aretha's live show by 1966. In the book, the producer, Jerry Wexler, recounts a conversation with Ted White Franklin, who again was then her probably abusive husband and manager. Wexler was looking for songs that Franklin could record, and he was like, I'm fine with Respect, as long as she changes it up from the original. And her husband said, you don't got to worry about that, Wex. She changes it up all right. Again, understatement of the century. Um, Just to go back to covers, also, I have to say something a little bit controversial. Uh, I think people are going to write in for this. I think that Nirvana's cover of Man That Sold the World is the definitive version of that song, not David Bowie's, even though it's really good. And so this is one of those rare cases where the cover is the ver- or also Amy Winehouse's version of Valerie, right? Like it's one like sometimes it happens where the cover is the is the song and the original is just sort of you know, an afterthought. <laughs> I will say
1: as someone who is um I don't know. Connoisseur is probably not the right word, but I've listened to many, many, many versions of Smooth Criminal, and I... I what oh, my I've, God.
0: I know where you're going with this.
1: No, it's not Alien Ant Farm. I know okay. what you're thinking. <laughs> I, what I find interesting about covers of that song is they're almost all completely different, but my favorite one is actually by Two Cellos,
0: <laughs> which oh my is God. an insight into my personality, probably. It is. Also... I, I don't know if you're comfortable with me telling you this story. When we first met, I was like, I think I was, I was like, oh, Annie, are you okay? And you were like, that song! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that
1: was a song until high school. So when people would ask me, Annie, are you okay? I was like, why? <laughs> What's wrong? <laughs> what, do I look like something's wrong? And then I didn't realize until people sang it. As I crossed <laughs> the high school graduation, I was like, ah, Yes. It must have
0: been a song all these years. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So I, I want to, we should, people should write in what cover, this is a good question. Write in what cover versions of songs do you think surpass the original a la Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin respect? So I, that, is, that is something I'd be very, very curious to know about. But yeah, as Annie mentioned earlier, uh, Aretha's version, it flips the script gender wise from Otis Redding's version. The original is a male speaker asking a woman who he is presumably bankrolling to respect him. Redding sings, Do me wrong, honey, if you wanna. You can do me wrong, honey, while I'm gone, for example. And Franklin saying, I ain't gonna do you wrong while you're gone. Ain't gonna do you wrong because I don't wanna. She also added on what became the song's signature line R E S P E C T. Find out what it means to me. Yeah, Bridget. <laughs> Sorry, that's, that's, that's not meant to be an Aretha Franklin impression. I also just got over laryngitis. Sorry. <laughs> Don't, I mean, yeah, I'm not a singer.
1: I thought that was pretty good. I could see
0: you singing at karaoke. Oh, I love karaoke. I've definitely sang Respect at karaoke. And like two years ago, me and my friends got like low-key asked to leave a bar <laughs> because we wouldn't stop singing Natural Woman. <laughs> we we're very drunk. <laughs> I love it. We were very drunk, and it it was like 4 p.m. on a Sunday or something. It was not the vibe to be (laughs) singing natural woman at the top of our lungs.
1: And like the whole rest of the bar cleared out. It was just you and your friends.
0: Basically. Peter Gerlenick, the author of Sweet Soul Music, Rhythm and Blues, and the Southern Dream of Freedom, points out that Aretha transformed the original meaning, quote, not so much by changing the lyrics... As by the feeling that she imparted on the song, so that respect became a proclamation of freedom, a proclamation of feminism, and a proclamation of an independent spirit.
1: Hell yeah. Yeah, that's the feeling I feel when I hear that, for sure.
0: She also added the line that is often misheard. Like people, when you are singing this song, it's like (laughs) that line that people, people are people say, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. And then there's that part where people are sort of like, like, (laughs) because no one knows what she's saying. Well, she's actually saying, take care of TCB, which is taking care of business. So like, taking care of the taking care of business. So next time you sing that song at karaoke, you're welcome, but that's what it means. (laughs) You're going to really impress some people in the crowd, for sure. You are, you are. But she added that as well. As well as adding that ending, that ending refrain, sock it to me, 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 sock it to me.
1: Yeah, and she told Fresh Air in a 1999 interview, my sister Carolyn and I got together. Her sisters Carolyn and Irma sang backup on the original song, by the way, on the original recording. Piano by the window, watching the cars go by, and we came up with that infamous line, the sock it to me line. It was a cliché of the day. Some of the girls were saying that to the fellows, like, sock it to me this way or sock it to me that way. Um, and she added that the phrase wasn't supposed to be sexual. It can simply mean something like, tell me or give it to me straight.
0: Jerry Wexler told her biographer that in her version of the song, the call for respect went from a request to a demand. And by using slang that her and her sisters had heard kind of on the streets and, and women just casually talking to their men... She recasts a song from a specifically female perspective. It is a song written by Otis Redding, who is considered obviously one of the most iconic soul men of all time. Ryland Rabaka, a professor of African, African American, and Caribbean studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and the author of *The Hip Hop Movement: From R&B to the Civil Rights Movement to Rap to the Hip Hop Generation*, Whew, it's a mouthful, <laughs> told box. But Aretha snatches the song away and reinfuses it with these second wave feminist sensibilities. In that same Fresh Air interview we mentioned above, Aretha said, in later times, it was picked up as a battle cry in the civil rights movement, but when I recorded it, it was pretty much a male-female kind of thing, and more in a general sense from person to person. I'm going to give you respect, and I'd like you to have that respect back, or I expect respect to be given back. Despite these intentions, and because of a deep need, the song took on a larger resonance culturally.
1: Yeah, and she wrote in her autobiography... So many people identified with and related to respect. It was the need of a nation, the need of the average man and woman on the street. The businessman, the mother, the fireman, the teacher, everyone wanted respect. It was also one of the battle cries of the civil rights movement. The song took on monumental significance.
0: And I think that's why respect has such meaning, particularly for women. You know, Franklin had her first kid at 12. She was involved in abusive relationships and just being a woman, especially a black woman, especially an outspoken black woman in that industry at that time, she's probably dealt with a wall of crap. Like, I can only imagine. And so singing that song, singing about, you know, demanding respect from men, but society. I mean, Professor Rabica points out, this is a pre Me Too movement, he said. But also a lot of women knew this sister Aretha was singing from a pit of pain. In a patriarchal society, he added, love is political. And I think that's what that really gets at why I'm so fascinated by her, because we have this saying that I think older feminists especially are very fond of. You know, the personal is political. I think that nobody bridges that gap quite like Aretha Franklin. Nobody makes that point that, listen, I am dealing with bullshit from my partner, bullshit from my label, bullshit from my industry, bullshit from society. Bullshit from lawmakers. Bullshit from the president. It's all intertwined, and it's not okay, and I demand that it stop. Right? Like, I, she just really puts that in a conversation of why, for feminists, for women, the personal is political. And she just, like, no, nobody makes it sound better. Yeah,
1: and this song was recorded during a time of political and social shifts. Here's how Cleveland.com puts it. February 14th, 1967, The Vietnam War raged anew in the aftermath of a fleeting truce. Back home, battles were being fought on other fronts, with the civil rights movement and women's movement fully mobilized. Two days earlier, speaking at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., on the 158th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's birth, President Lyndon Johnson called for an end to racism, which he condemned as man's ancient curse and man's present shame. A few months later, Johnson would sign an executive order that expanded affirmative action legislation to cover sex discrimination. Valentine's Day fell on a Tuesday that year. In New York City, the weather was unseasonably mild. And inside the Broadway recording studios of Atlantic Records, an African-American woman in her youthful prime pounded a piano and began to sing, What you want, baby, I got it. What you need, you know I got it. You know I got it. All I'm asking gonna, is...
0: You can, I know you've got pipes, Annie. Oh, you I don't. You can sing it if you want.
1: I, I'm a steady above average.
0: <laughs> That's it.
1: <laughs> All I'm asking is for a little respect when you come home. Hey, baby. Her name was Aretha Franklin. Soon she would be hailed as the Queen of Soul and respect would stand as her crowning achievement.
0: Oh, I die. I love it so much. I die. And yeah, you can really see how... Not only was this song a pivotal moment in her professional career, it was a pivotal moment for the country. The country was changing. The role of women, the role of people of color, you know, the, the country, we were at this massive precipice, and it's almost as if she struck right at that time and cut into what we were all feeling in our in our romantic lives, but in our, in our social and political lives as well. Yeah,
1: it was... She came along at the perfect moment, right when it needed the anvil to be struck. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And I think that people forget that she was actually a huge part of the civil rights movement.
1: Yeah, she she grew up in the movement, Rebecca said, um, quote, "Her work has a particular meaning for the Black Freedom Movement, for the Civil Rights Movement, for the Black Power Movement, and for the black women involved in the women's liberation movement at that time." Civil rights workers would see her at a fundraiser right next to Martin Luther King Jr. raising funds for the movement, and then hear her records on the radio.
0: Uh, I love it. One of my favorite little-known Aretha Franklin stories. And if you if you follow me on Instagram, which if you want tidbits about women and music, because that's literally the only thing I care about, <laughs> you should. I'm at Bridget Marie in DC. Follow me if you if that's your thing. But I posted it there, so you may have already seen this. So if you're hearing it twice, sorry. But one of my favorite stories about her that I feel like gets sort of overlooked is that when Angela Davis was arrested, so if you don't know who Angela Davis was, she is a political activist and scholar who was arrested and charged with murder in a connection with a California courtroom shootout with police in which four people were killed. She was later acquitted. But at the time, she was arrested. And Aretha Franklin was not going to let this stand. She told Jet Magazine, quote, Black people will be free. Jail is hell to be in. I'm going to see her free if there is any justice in our courts, not because I believe in communism, but because she is a black woman and she wants freedom for black people. And she ended up, you know, pledging to post her bail if if she was not freed. And her explanation for it was so great. She basically said, this is my money. I made this money because black people bought my records. Angela Davis wants black people to be free, ergo, this is my responsibility as a black woman who has money. And she goes on to say, probably one of my favorite Aretha Franklin uh, like quotes of all time, which is really saying something. I know you got to disturb the peace when you can't get no peace. And I, I love that. Like, think about her iconic voice. That's exactly what she did. When you think of that song, that is a song that cuts through the BS. And that is what she was all about. I mean, you gotta respect. You gotta respect. Got to R-A-S-P-E-C-T it. <laughs> you
1: too. <do. laughs> Try I had to make too many of those jokes throughout this
0: episode? I know. I was. I, this is. If we had a counter on this episode. It'd be like seventeen R A S P E C Ts later, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then a separate counter for a. Uh, Four attempts at
0: singing Mary the <laughs> Listen, song. I never said I was the Queen of
1: Soul. <laughs> well no, we never claimed it, but we took a stab at it.
0: <laughs> you know, I'll i I'll take Princess of Soul or like Duchess of Soul. <laughs> I'll be
1: like, what is it? Oh, jester of soul.
0: Oh, I love that. Okay, this is <laughs> we're on to something here.
1: We are. So So
0: this iconic song actually took up quite an interesting Uh, legacy in terms of copyright and legality and all of that stuff, which we'll get more into after this quick break. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Now, something that I really didn't know much about, which I found fascinating, is that because it's a cover, Franklin's Respect actually became kind of a rally cry around copyright law. Under U.S. copyright law, American radio stations pay only the writers and publishers of a song, not artists who perform them. That means that every time respect is played on the radio, Redding's estate, and Redding died in 1967 in a plane crash, has been paid. Franklin never was. That is shocking. It is shocking, especially, I mean, especially, listen, no disrespect to Otis Redding, but Aretha Franklin that is her song. Like she, like that is her song. People don't think of Otis Redding doing respect. Like that is her song. Absolutely. And also, even even
1: if not, even if you were generous and said if not, it's a different. She transformed that song from what he was singing.
0: Yes, yes. It's all. I mean, it's almost like they're different songs.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel that way. And again, disclaimer: I haven't heard it, but I'm very much getting that vibe. <laughs>
0: No, I have heard it. No disclaimer needed. They're different songs. Okay. I'm going I'm I'm to say that. Yes. All right. Don't at me. They're different songs.
1: <laughs> so efforts to change the law go back decades with respect often held up by the music industry as exhibit A for why it was unfair. But broadcasters, which are a pretty powerful lobbying group, have successfully argued that performers already benefit from the promotion they receive from radio play.
0: Which is BS because... You know, your legacy, your estate can't eat promotion. You know, that's that's not... I don't think right. that's an appropriate argument.
1: No. The Universal Music Publishing Group, which controls reading, songwriting, copyright, declined to say how much the song has earned. But the licensing agency, BMI, said that Respect had been played 7.4 million times on commercial radio stations in the United States since it was released.
0: So think about how much money that is, you know? For for real, yeah. And she sees none of it. It's so unfair. Yeah, and
1: economist Barry Mastersky, who specializes in valuing music catalogs, estimated that over the last five years alone, Respect has earned about $500,000, about 40% of that from commercial radio and the rest from television and streaming services.
0: Yeah, according to Mitch Glazer, the president of the Recording Industry Association of America, he says, quote, some recordings more clearly highlight the inequality of the laws, and respect is one of the best examples. And again, in recent
1: years, respect has become a battle song in a fight over digital rights. Laws passed in the 1990s let performing artists collect royalties from internet and satellite radio, but songs were exempt if they were recorded before a change in federal copyright law took effect in 1972. A 2014 bill to change that was named the Respect Act in honor of the song. A lobbying campaign was titled, It's a Matter of R-E-S-P-E-C-T, with Franklin's approval. And a current bill in Congress, the Music Modernization Act, would force digital radio services to pay royalties for songs recorded before 1972.
0: I have to add, it's a good thing that they know that 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 campaign had Aretha's, you know, blessing because... This is one of my other favorite things about Aretha Franklin. If Aretha Franklin didn't f- with you, she really didn't f- with you. And so if you, like nobody threw shade like Aretha Franklin. Okay, so again, this is not a podcast about how great Aretha Franklin was at throwing shade. Although I would listen to that and we should make a follow-up. But <laughs> in 1993, New York Post columnist Liz Smith wrote about Aretha Franklin's outfit. She must know that she's too bosomy to wear such clothing. But she just doesn't care what we think, and that attitude is what separates mere stars from true divas. So you might be thinking, oh, that sounds like a compliment. You know who didn't find it a compliment? Aretha Franklin. Aretha Franklin wrote a response to her, like wrote this out to her. How dare you be so presumptuous as to presume you could know my attitudes with respect to anything other than music. Obviously, I have enough of what it takes to wear a bustier, and I haven't had any complaints. I'm sure if you could, you would, When you get to be a noted and respected fashion editor, please let us all know, Aretha Franklin. P.S. You are hardly in any position to determine what separates stars from divas, since you are neither one nor an authority on either. wow. (laughs) It's so good. So what I'm saying is I'm glad this campaign got her permission because if they had not and she was not down with it, they would have heard about it and they would have heard about it like in a very cutting way, knowing her. (laughs)
1: Another, another cool thing is that Otis Redding's family is supportive of this bill, even while they are benefiting from money from the song and they may profit from the song, including his daughter, Carla Redding Andrews, who has supported changing the law covering pre-1972 songs.
0: And it does kind of sound like this sort of thing is a holdover from these terrible, terrible industry practices of yesteryear. And I'm sure these practices are like not, you know, dead and buried at all. Jeff Jambool, who manages estates for people like Franklin and Redding, said that unfair financial treatment was built into the fabric of their early careers, and the music industry has not fully made amends. He says, the record business has a long history of treating artists like chattel slavery. We've grown out of those dark ages a bit, but when it comes to actually paying them fairly, that is the last needle to move. And yeah, I think that knowing all of this about her legacy and this song, I mean, she is a woman who dealt with so much. And I mean, I, I think she's a national treasure. I think that there are, there are few people that I would consider to be national treasures when it comes to, to music. And she's one of them.
1: Yeah. And from what little I know about uh, copyright law, it does seem, it seems like the whole thing needs a rehaul. It seems like a lot, a lot needs to change there.
0: Definitely, yeah. She was our. She was the first woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Like, she's a national icon, and we need to be. I'm just gonna say it. I won't say it. We need to be respecting. <laughs> I won't spell it out. Don't worry. I'll <laughs> show a little restraint. We need. No, I'm gonna do it. We need to respect her legacy. Boom. <laughs> the, the counter just went up another notch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it had to happen. It had to happen so this this has been our our episode on Aretha Franklin and specifically on respect she gave a lot of us so much she gave this country so much so it was it was uh, sad and rewarding to to talk about her
0: yeah I wish her family peace and (laughs) I mean I don't want to get emotional I just really really respect her and I have nothing but reverence for her and I love her so much and I'm so so glad we got to have her for a little while. I and mean, I'm sure that Aretha and Whitney are up in heaven right now, causing all kinds of drama. So I, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that <of>
1: <laughs> That is a wonderful mental image.
0: <laughs> and with that, that brings us to the end of this episode. In honor of our of our Queen of Soul, we would like to move into listener mail with a little taste of what she gave us.
1: Our first letter comes from Caitlin. Caitlin wrote, I had a weird aha moment while listening to your Cool Girl episode. I am a professor at a state university in an engineering department. In my engineering college, female faculty make up less than 20% of the faculty. And this summer, I joined the ranks of tenured faculty. I think there are nine women with tenure out of 130 ish faculty. Not surprisingly, We women face some unusual challenges in the classroom. I reached out for help countless times with discipline problems in my classes, particularly from bros, as my friends and I have nicknamed the typical difficult archetype. The suggestions from mostly senior male colleagues to cope is, quote, lay down the law, assume more authority. It's your classroom, demand respect. It's one of the reasons I included this letter in the episode. (laughs) It's about respect. Um, She goes on, Each and every time I've done this, behavior in my class blows up in my face. Here comes my aha moment. My students, particularly the bros, expect me to be a cool girl. Am I a young woman rocking a traditionally male-dominated field? Yes. Am I comfortable talking about car engines and how to turn into energy? Yes. Does that earn me some cred with my students? Yes. But like a cool girl, my students expect me to be unflappable and accommodating. Need extra time on your homework? Sure, no problem. Struggling with an assignment? Let me give you the answer. It'll be our secret. You cheated on an exam. You must have a good reason for it. We'll work something out. When I don't behave as expected, the pushback and rejection is immediate and apparent. I generally want to say screw you and move on with the students who want to learn, but there are teaching evaluations. Teaching evaluations are used as the only record of my teaching and promotions and merit-based raises. And students use these as instruments to air their grievances, legitimate or otherwise. It gives the bros power over me, the not cool girl. Likewise, in seeking help with challenges presented on teaching evaluations in the pursuit of tenure, I have been presented with alternative approaches to teaching and strategies for making my learning objectives more clear. Not one person has addressed how to assume a position of respect in my classroom when my students' expectation of my persona is very unrealistic. Even when I straight up asked, how do I get their respect when I want to enforce my classroom rules code of conduct and my students want me to be accommodating? I was told this is not the problem to just be more clear about your expectations. I guess this is just one more way women in academia are subversely told they do not belong. You probably could do a whole podcast on teaching evaluations. The language used in some of my evaluations would make your skin crawl, and I know I am not alone.
0: Oh, my God. Okay, so some of you all know I was I'm formerly used to teach college before I got into the podcast game. Oh, This letter gave me, like, stress flashbacks. Yes to everything you said. I've seen it. I've experienced it. It's bullshit, I hate it. It makes me want to throw up. Teaching evaluations. Like if you, if you, I think I probably still have some of them. And yes, we should do an entire episode about it because, you know, they're just so awful and so sexist. And really it's one of those things where you cannot win. I used to try to be a cool professor in the very beginning and that never works. Students will walk all over you. And then if you're not little miss cool, little miss accommodating... They, they do, they take it out on your evaluations. And that's the only thing, at least at my college, we ha- also had observation days, but that was really it. You didn't have a lot of things to go on if you wanted to build your record as a professor. And I'll, I'll never forget, like by my, by my third year teaching, I was like, yeah, I'm a hard ass. And that's just the situation. And people can be upset with it. And, you know, I, I realized that you can always get more lenient as the semester goes on, but you can't get more strict. So you've got, you got you at least for me like I had to start strict. And but you really you're so right. You cannot win. It is such a catch 22 as a a young woman in academia. You just it's just tripwires. It's so hard.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad she sent this because um, I hadn't considered before the the teaching evaluation thing because my dad was a professor. Um and just how, to me, after reading this, it seems obvious that it would there would be a different set of standards on women, female teachers, as opposed to
0: male teachers. You would not believe it. This is this warrants an episode. I mean, I'm getting like hot under the collar just thinking about it.
1: <laughs> she sent us a picture of one of her evaluations, and like one of the comments was um, that she was a babe.
0: This Ugh. was on our teacher
1: evaluation.
0: Well, that's like, rate my professor. They have that. They used to have that. I don't know if they still do because I'm no longer in the classroom, but they used to have that chili function. So oh, yeah. you could rate your class and then throw a chili powder or chili pepper in there if they were hot. Yeah. Ugh. I do remember that. Awful. That annoyed me. Thank you for your letter. Now I'm all irritated. <laughs> this is like, it, it, it's almost like, yeah, I have like rage flashbacks. Okay. Anyway, Ashley writes. Growing up, I never felt a real connection to my last name, mostly because we were always closer to my mom's side of the family. Like Bridget said, my accomplishments were on behalf of my mom's side, not my dad's name. Then my parents got divorced because of wrongdoings of my dad. After that, I couldn't wait to get married and take my husband's name so I could disassociate from my dad's name and family. My family understands. And as a note, when my parents got divorced, my mom kept my dad's name because she used his name for her entire professional career. So her name is her brand. It will be incredibly confusing if she changed it 15 years into the business. I also want to say that my favorite celebrity name change was when Alexa Vega from Spy Kids and Carlos Pena from Big Time Rush got married. They mashed their names together and both changed their last name to Penn Vega. That is amazing. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's really cool. I didn't know that either.
1: Uh, yeah, that, that has been really interesting. Um, one of the things that we didn't really get to talk about when we did the name, why why to change your name or why do we change your name and why not, um, is kind of how a lot for a lot of us our, our last names are our father's names and what happens when that relationship is complicated. And also like when women are getting divorced but – since they since generations before ours got married earlier they built their career on their married name so for the same reasons that kind of in our generations we're keeping women are keeping their last name because they don't it's their brand and they built their career on it it's it just happened with earlier generations with the married name so that that's been very, very interesting to hear from a lot. A lot of listeners wrote in about that, about how their mom kept their married name even after divorce.
0: Yeah, again, it just, there are so many stories and layers and situations. This, I had no idea this issue was so complex, but I'm so glad that people are writing it. And I'm, I'm glad that we raised it. Yeah does, yeah. does that sound braggy? I didn't mean that to sound braggy. No. I mean, no. Go us. <laughs> Asking
1: the hard-hitting questions. So thanks to both of them for writing in. If you have anything that you would like to write in to us about, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com.
0: And you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast.
1: And as always, thanks to our producer, Dylan Fagan.